And a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hogo, and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, South Africa and Iran to agree to increase non-oil trade and investment to a billion dollars by 2020. And faith communities should join the chorus in addressing the issue of climate change. In sports news, Africans dominate the London Marathon. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The United States has blamed South Sudan's government for the latest hold-up in efforts to end its civil war. Rebel leader Rayek Machar was due to fly to the capital Juba from Ethiopia on Saturday to join a transitional government, but President Silva Kiir's government blocked his flight. He's now due to return on Monday, but U.S. Special Envoy to South Sudan Donald Booth says repeated delays had called into question both parties' commitment to the agreement. Booth also warned the U.N. Security Council was due to meet on Tuesday to discuss the crisis and that both sides could face additional international sanctions. Rwanda nationals who fled xenophobic attacks in the Zambian capital, Osaka, have started returning to their homes in the capital. Two people were burned to death last week in a wave of violence which targeted mostly Rwandans who allegedly who were alleged to be involved in ritual killings. Shops operated by Rwandans as well as their houses were looted, forcing many of the East Africans to seek protection at police stations. UNHCR has warned that the outflow of refugees from Burundi could grow further unless a political solution to the crisis is found. The refugee agency says 260,000 people have fled to neighboring countries and thousands more could join them over the rest of the year. Matthew Wells reports. Back in April last year, President Pierre Nkurunziza sought a controversial third term, triggering demonstrations from opposition groups and civil society. Many asylum seekers or new arrivals report human rights abuses in Burundi, says UNHCR, including torture, sexual violence, arbitrary detention, forced recruitment by militia, killings and extortion. UNHCR is seeking just over $175 million for its Burundi crisis operations this year, but has received only $47.8 million to date. Matthew Wells, United Nations. Almost two-thirds of children who have not been immunized with basic vaccines live in countries affected by conflict. This is according to UNICEF. South Sudan has the highest percentage of unimmunized children, 
with 61% failing to receive the most basic childhood vaccines followed by Somalia and Syria. Meanwhile, Libya has just concluded a polio vaccination campaign with the help of UNICEF and the World Health Organization. The five-day campaign is estimated to have reached more than one million children. Libya has been polio-free since 1991. And finally, there's an outpour of grief in the Democratic Republic of Congo following the death of influential musician Papa Wimba, who died at the age of 66. Wimba died after he collapsed on stage during a performance at a music festival in Abidjan in the Ivory Coast. He reportedly suffered a seizure at the Fuma Festival after performing two songs. He collapsed during his third song and was later rushed to hospital by the Ivorian Red Cross. Papa Wimba, whose real name is Jules Shungu Wambadio Pene Kikumba, was born in the DRC. He played in bands in Kinshasa from the late 1960s when he gained his fame in Africa and subsequently in world music. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. South African Afro Soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. South Africa and Iran have agreed to increase non-oil trade and investment to a billion dollars by 2020. This emerged after bilateral talks between South Africa's President Jacob Zuma and his Iranian counterpart Hassan Rouhani in the capital Tehran yesterday. President Zuma is on a two-day visit to strengthen bilateral trade and investment between Pretoria and Tehran. The lifting of sanctions against Iran in January has brought new opportunities for foreign businesses. Iran holds 10% of the world's oil reserves and has the world's second largest natural gas reserves. Tsebwe Ganeng is in Tehran and filed this report. The lifting of sanctions has made Iran to become a big investment draw. The Islamic State is attractive partly because it has a far more diverse economy than its neighbors. A number of European and Asian countries are looking to secure trade deals and a significant share of Iran's oil and gas. South Africa remains Iran's strategic ally, a relationship that was crafted during the anti-apartheid struggle era in which Tehran back then exiled ANC. It is for this reason that the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, rolled out a red carpet to welcome President Jacob Zuma, who is on his first state visit to Tehran. The people of Iran always stood by the people of South Africa during their struggles against apartheid, and the people of Iran were always their ally and friend. 
President Zuma used his first official encounter with President Rouhani to once again welcome the lifting of sanctions against Iran, a move he described as a positive step towards the integration of the Islamic State into the global economy. We are pleased with the lifting of sanctions which will allow Iran to deepen engagement with the community of nations and create further prosperity for its people, including ours. We are confident that today we have laid a solid foundation for the elevation and consolidation of bilateral relations between our governments and our people into a strategic partnership. Attracting foreign investment is a priority for the administration of President Rouhani, who won a landslide election victory last year, partly by promising to repair the sanctions-ravaged economy. President Rouhani says the establishment of shipping lines between the ports of South Africa and Iran will be mutually beneficial. Through the ports of South Africa, Iran can gain access to a large port in the southern areas of Africa. And let's not forget that the southern ports of Iran can connect South Africa to the countries in Central Asia or Caucasian countries, to Russia or even countries in Eastern Europe through the South-North Corridor. Both President Zuma and Rouhani presided over the signing of eight bilateral trade agreements in the fields of energy, mining, agriculture, water resources, and the cooperation in intelligence gathering and the anti-money laundering initiatives. The President has also lauded efforts to formalize the establishment of the South Africa-Iran Business Council. The time is indeed ripe for us to consolidate our trade and investment ties. I must also underline that the enthusiasm that I see here is encouraging. The attendance here speaks volumes of the interest and passion of both business from both countries that we are ready to do business. We want business to flourish between South Africa and <clears throat> Iran. This is our moment. President Zuma later met with Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei before heading to Isfahan, which is Iran's ancient city and a cultural tourism maker. Sepoikaneng in Tehran, Iran. The influential Congolese musician Papa Wemba has died after collapsing during a concert. A video from the show in Ivory Coast showed the 66-year-old slumped on stage behind a group of dancers before they rushed to his aid. His pioneering blend of African, Cuban and Western influences became one of Africa's most popular music styles. Luanda Maume has more. Congolese singer Baba Wemba has died after collapsing on stage in Abidjan in Ivory Coast. He was hailed as one of Africa's most popular musicians and a leading figure in the world music scene. Wemba, whose real name is Jules Shungu Wemba Dio Pene Kikumba, was pronounced dead on stage after singing his dead song, 
according to the Congolese publication. The cause of death is currently unknown. The globally prestigious musician was performing at the festival de musique a band de Almunabo. The Congolese culture minister Budwan Banza Mukalai has expressed sadness at the news, calling it a greatest loss for the country and all of Africa. Known as the king of rumba rock, Wemba began his musical career in religious choirs and rose to fame in his 20s. Popularizing Congolese rumba music, he went on to gain global and francophone recognition. In the course of the six-decade-long career, Wemba toured with Stevie Wonder, among others, and earned a gold disc for a collaboration with Peter Gabriel. Famed for his flamboyant dress sense, the style icon inspired an entire subculture of young, fashionable Central Africans known as Sapo. Indeed, Africa has lost one of his greatest sons. Luyanda Maume, Channel Africa. Faith communities should join the chorus in addressing the issue of climate change. As according to Imam Talib Abdur Rashid, Vice President, of the Muslim Alliance in North America, a network of Muslim individuals and organizations committed to working together to address social and economic issues specific to the Muslim community. The Alliance attended the International Islamic Climate Change Symposium in Istanbul in August 2015, where a declaration on global climate change was launched and signed by 18 Islamic leaders. Rashid spoke to UN Radio's Carmen Cuesta Roca on his visit to the UN in New York, where he presented the declaration to the President of the General Assembly. The symposium was a very historic event because it brought together uh, Muslim leaders and activists from around the planet, actually, in order to begin to address the dynamics and the impacts of uh, global climate change and to uh, start a discussion as to what we as a faith community globally can do about that problem. And of course you're talking about the Islamic faith there. What is so special about the Islamic faith that can contribute a unique aspect to the climate change debate? Well, I think not only the Islamic faith, but globally we just believe that the time has come for a kind of uh, a universal brotherhood of faith wherein people who uh, have made strong faith commitments begin to uh, actualize that commitment in relation to the environment. This is very important. There are a lot of voices out there right now addressing uh, the need for uh, uh, dealing with climate change. And we think that the time has come for the voices from communities of faith to join that chorus. So here in New York City, uh, just a few days ago, we had an interfaith prayer service wherein you had leaders who were Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Sikh, Jewish, all of us coming together. And by the way, the president of the General Assembly was at that, that uh, uh, gathering that we had. So now we want to move from uh, uh, prayer and contemplation 
to uh, action. How do you move from prayer and contemplation to action? Well, certainly one way is to begin to use houses of worship as places for education of congregation about the problem, uh, sermons about the problem, and I have to say just unleashing the young people in the congregations and letting them lead the way. And tell me a little bit about how your experience at the UN has been. Uh, I found it uh, very uplifting and very uh, enlightening. I was uh, frankly taken by surprise that the uh, uh, President of the General Assembly remembered us from a few days ago, as busy as he is, and the warmth with which he greeted us. And uh, I was taken by surprise by that, and I think it's indicative of the spiritual atmosphere that pervades the UN. And for you, what is the biggest obstacle to the climate change problem? Probably lack of knowledge and lack of action. And we can correct it. Those are correctable things. And so we need, just as the United Nations itself has come up with uh, the action campaign and is tackling sustainable development throughout the world, well, we believe that this is an aspect of that. The environment is an aspect of this. And then spiritually, in our faith, the Islamic faith, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said to us 14 centuries ago, the earth is your mother, so take care of her. And so when we reflect on that, then no wonder we're having such problems globally if we're not taking care of our mother. So we need to love our mother, respect our mother, and take care of her. And that's what this initiative is all about. That was Imam Talib Abdul Rashid, Vice President of the Muslim Alliance in North America. And he was speaking to UN Radio's Carmen Cuesta Roca. Efforts to protect the world's second largest tropical rainforest received a boost on Friday thanks to a 200 million US dollar deal between the Democratic Republic of Congo and international partners. The deal aims to address forest degradation in the country and promote sustainable development. It's part of the UN-led Central African Forest Initiative and the reducing emission from deforestation and forest degradation declaration known as RED+. Plus. Representatives of the United Nations Development Programme in Goma, Priya Gajraj, explains the significance of this deal. The signing of the letter of intent between the Central African Forest Initiative and the government of the DRC is important because it will address deforestation and forest degradation in the country and promote sustainable development. And to me, there's two key issues to put forward. The first is the approach behind this initiative is really an integrated and holistic approach, looking at the factors contributing to the loss of forests in DRC including agricultural expansion, use of fuel, wood, land use planning, unsecured tenure, demographic pressure, and seeing how we can, in an integrating and holistic manner, work on these issues. On the second point, it's also important because it's the first letter of intent being signed between CAFI and a country of the Central Africa region, 
and the largest one ever concluded on the Red Plus in Africa. So it's also sending an important signal. Do you think that this money will be enough? 200 million sounds like a big amount. Well, it's obviously an important commitment to the process and a significant contribution. Obviously, both Cassie and the government of DRC and, and ourselves are committing to continue efforts to see how to secure additional resources, both international and domestic, to continue to capitalize on this fund. Another important aspect of the CAFI initiative is that it's actually based on a coalition of partners, which encourages actually donor coordination and enhanced partnerships. So we really also hope that through this approach, we can bring other partners and, and, and other entities on board. Yes, and we should just say that CAFI is the Central African Forest Initiative. Now, in terms of the funding, that is obviously very symbolic coming on the same day as uh, countries and member states sign for the Paris Accords, the effort to reduce global temperatures to two degrees or lower beneath uh, pre-industrial levels. But what's political will in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Because there was talk initially of a move to restart logging in the country. I think it's important to remember that uh, this is not an overnight success. This has actually been a process of engagement by all the partners, including the government of DRC. There's been ongoing efforts on Red Plus since 2009 with the support of a number of partners, including NDP. So it's important to look at this in terms of a continuous process based on engagement, commitment, by all partners, including the government, over a number of years. Today, as you said, marks an important milestone, and we all need to collectively continue to maintain the momentum on this process and moving forward. That was Priya Gajraj of the United Nations Development Program in Goma, the DRC, and she was speaking to you in Radio's Daniel Johnson. It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now empowering the youth with the knowledge necessary for active citizenship and encouraging them to register and vote in elections is critical to nurturing democracy. This is according to the South African Independent Electoral Commission. The commission is partnering with the Department of Basic Education to educate young people about democracy. The program, which started yesterday, is rolled out in selected public schools throughout the country. To talk more about this, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Nomsa Masugu, Deputy Chief Electoral Officer for Outreach, at the IEC. Good morning, Dr. Masugu, and uh, welcome to Channel Africa. Uh, good morning, and good morning to all your listeners. And now, Doc, can you tell us about this initiative, and how would you say the first day of the program went? Uh, the, the program uh, is a partnership, as we have said, with the Department of Basic Education. It is on its fourth year. Uh, we started running it in 2013. Uh, the first uh, day... Uh, even though I haven't received all the reports, uh, as it is early morning, uh, seems to have gone well. Now, are we seeing an interest from young people to be actively involved in socio-economic or political issues? I would say that uh, young people, uh, as far, from, where we, from where I am sitting, uh, seem interested. 
they are interested, uh, sometimes uh, a, a barrier for them is their understanding. It is um, a, a sense that they do not understand what it is that uh, is going on, for example, when it comes to voting, they do not understand uh, the link between their vote and uh, everything else that is going on in their lives. That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, sometimes uh, just misinformation. They think that um, uh, registration, for example, is laborious and uh, it requires them standing in queues for an inordinate uh, amount of time and time that they don't want to invest. So what we find is that um, in our work, and especially with our campaigns on social media, uh, they've been extremely responsive. And uh, when we reach out to them, whether it is through youth summits and those kinds of outreach programs, they are, they are very enthusiastic. Now, Doc, I see that uh, this program or this initiative is mainly targeted at public schools. Why not include all schools, which is inclusive of the private schooling sector? Actually, uh, we have a few private schools that are that are on the program. When you started in, th- in 2013, the a- the aim is to grow the program until we are in all. Uh, 25,000 odd schools in, in, in South Africa. However, uh, however, we're doing it incrementally over the, over the years. Some schools um, um, were able to, to get on board immediately. Other schools needed a few more years to get on board and, um, and sort out their governance. And uh, they're, they're coming on board very slowly uh, but surely. How has this program or initiative been received in the schools that you've worked with already so far and the schools that you are sort of uh, have identified that you would like to work with them? How have they received this uh, initiative? We've uh, seen uh, very enthusiastic debaters of uh, what democracy is and what it means, the concept of it and uh, the application of it to to day-to-day life. We have seen uh, creativity where young people do sketches and they act them out in order to to teach uh, each other as peers um, about what democracy is and what voting means in that context. We have seen uh, poems being, being created We've seen um, essays um, that have been written. Uh, We've seen a burst of energy uh, amongst young people. But more than anything else, we've seen quite a a huge spike in the registration of 16-year-olds. That is great for us because a lot of young people do not realize that they can register at 16, even though they are not eligible to vote until they are 18. Now, Dr. Masuku, this is the fourth edition of the program. What have previous um, additions achieved? Previous additions have, um, we've incrementally uh, changed the program. We have had um, to learn to work as two huge institutions, the Electoral Commission of South Africa and the Department of Basic Education. Uh, We are both very big uh, uh, bureaucracies that that, that, that has had to be ironed out and that has improved. But also, we have also, um, when we started in 2013, we ran the program in October, and October is not the greatest month because uh, schools generally are faced with, um, with, with examinations and they have other things that are sidetracking them. We then successfully moved the program to April in 2014, which is significant because that is Freedom, Freedom Month and we can, we can be, uh, be able to link uh, what is going on today and what has happened uh, in our past as South Africans. Uh, 
So it has been um, it, it has been those small little uh, tweaks over there. The, the memorandum of understanding with the Department of uh, Basic Education comes to an end this year. That is, phase one comes to an end. We'll go into a review process, and by the time that we do the program again in April, we'll have reviewed everything from content, from implementation, from uh, the, the design of, uh, of um, materials, etc. Now, Dr. Musugu, you mentioned earlier the fact that uh, this young generation, um, especially the, the kids in school, um, in high school, who don't really appreciate the fact that they have to wait in long queues and, you know, um, register and, and, and vote. Um, and this is a great initiative to sort of push them in that direction to be patriotic because being a part of the voting system is a, a sort of uh, patriotism because you, you're giving back to um, your country in that sense. Now, are there means or um, sort of platforms that uh, the initiative has maybe identified going forward that can make it uh, easier or um, more accessible to the younger generation? Young people continuously talk to us about that. They talk to us about um, why can't I register online? Why can't I vote online? And uh, our response to them is that stay with us, stay with the conversation, because that is a conversation that is ongoing. It depends about the readiness of the, of, of the country. It depends on the readiness of the competitors themselves. You do not want to go um, and launch a system of, uh, of voting or registration that is not accepted by the co- competitors because immediately the risk that you run is that they will not accept the result. So we invite them to, the, to those fora where we are debating the pros and cons of um, e-registration and, e- and e-voting. They've got very interesting ideas. Not all of them are practical from where we stand. Um, and we, we also show them how you go about a lobbying National Assembly to change uh, laws, because the Electoral Commission does not make the laws, uh, and it is important for them to understand who to lobby in order to get a change, a, a, a legislative change. Dr. Masugu, thank you very much for joining us, and all the best with your initiative, and we will touch base with you um, later in the, in the year to find out how um, this, this initiative, this time around, progressed and, and uh, went. Thank, thank you for you joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Take care. You too. That was Dr. Nomsa Masugu, the Deputy Chief Electoral Officer for Outreach at the South African Electoral Commission. It's exactly 8.30. And we say good morning to Anne Musa with the headlines. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the U.S. has blamed South Sudan for the latest holdup in efforts to end a civil war. This after rebel leader Rahik Machar's flight was blocked from entering Juba on Saturday to join a transitional government. Rwandan nationals have fled xenophobic attacks in Zambia's capital. Lusaka has returned to their homes. And condolences continue to pour in for Papa Wimba, who died over the weekend after collapsing during a concert in Abidjan in Ivory Coast. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Get to know Channel Africa and all the people who bring news, views and great African entertainment. Bonjour à tous, merci encore une fois d'être sur Channel Africa. You can now catch Channel Africa on DSTV Audio Bokeh, Channel 902. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, the custom of paying bride prices is widely practiced on the African continent, even though traditions vary. But in Cameroon, bride price is no longer a symbolic gift to a girl's family as a gesture of a man's willingness to marry her. Many families now request as many as 20 cattle, 20 pigs, goats, beer and huge sums of money before giving their daughters in in marriage. The practice discourages young people from getting married and many now live as concubines. Moki Kinzaga reports from Yawande. Hundreds of people discussed happily at the Ongenes residence at Mimboman on the outskirts of Yaoundé as they received dresses, food and money from a man getting married to their daughter. The smiling 22-year-old bride, Marie-Julienne Ongene, tells me her would-be husband has spent 16,000 United States dollars on what her family requested as bride prize. <laughs> she says the man paid 8 million silver francs as requested by maternal and paternal uncles and aunts in the form of bags of rice, onions, pork, loincloths for her mother and sisters whiskies and dresses for her father and her brothers. Then in the boxes, she says they brought envelopes filled with money for close relatives. Marie-Julienne Ongene, a graduate from the University of Douala in Cameroon, says her family was moderate in their request, considering that they had spent a lot of money to educate her. Elsewhere, she told me her friend's parents asked for 20 cows, 20 pigs, 20 goats and money. A cow costs about 600 United States dollars in Cameroonian towns. 62-year-old Nzali Giselle, invited to the ceremony as an elderly person in their neighborhood, says she is happy she was given three pairs of loincloths and 50 United States dollars. But she says the amount spent by the groom's family is more than what was paid when she was a youth. She says prices of basic goods and food are skyrocketing and parents have invested on their female children by educating them and are therefore expecting the benefits of their investment. She says it gives an impression bright prices are increasing and adds that a long time ago it was possible to tap palm wine or harvest colour nuts from the bush to pay 
today bright price, but that today people need Brazilian hair products and manufactured goods which are in fashion. In this community, as in many others in Cameroon, youths have been complaining of their inability to get married because of the huge sums of money requested as bride prize. They submitted their grievance to Reverend Paul Emmanuel Nimpa, a Catholic priest. He says parents are transforming their daughters to commodities and this should stop. She says it will be good to maintain the tradition of paying bride price as it was before. That is to say, according to him, it has a symbolic, economic, religious and social dimension in terms of consolidating friendship bonds between the families of those getting married and eventually their tribal origins and communities. Back at the traditional ruler's palace, Chief Ndudumo Isaac of Mimboman says he will not heed to the campaign by the clergy for bride prices to be reduced. He says his ancestors, whom he states have their own share of the bride price, will not accept, and that that is the African way of doing things, and not what Europeans are imposing on them in the name of Allah or God. He says they came and requested that they should harmonize bride prices, but they will never do it, because in Cameroon there are many cultures and traditions with specific practices. Sociologist Zogo Benjamin says since bride prices a one-time very important ritual to show respect for the bride's parents in many Cameroonian societies changed from mere symbolic gifts, many people who would have loved to marry have decided to stay as concubines. À l'époque, c'était l'échange de cadeaux. He says at the beginning, it was an exchange of gifts. The boys and the girls' family brought symbolic gifts to show signs of seriousness during their first meeting, but that today, it is money, and that is not all. That the man is even giving the siblings of the girls to sponsor their education, and that is why many young people now prefer concubinage. He says the worst thing is even that tradition does not accept that bride price be paid in installments. Cameroon is just one of several African countries experiencing a change in this old tradition. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Ipsos, the marketing management analytics company, released the hashtag Earth Day Facts and Findings from its research report on water crisis, nuclear power and alternative sources in South Africa. Mary Harris, Director Global Product Manager at Ipsos, says the result of a survey carried out by her company reflects the demographic of the Southern African nation's population. These findings that we now released on Earth Day is based on study we've done at the end of last year. We interviewed more than 3,600 respondents. They were randomly chosen. We interviewed them in their homes and in their home languages, and the results are representative of the South African population. 
There are three questions they can look at. The one is, what is going to be the next supply crisis in our country? Then we ask a question about nuclear power and a question about green energy. So first of all, the next supply crisis. I think South Africans, all, or more than half of South Africans agree that the next supply crisis might be driven by water. And I do not think that is something alien to the rest of Africa because we are all in the middle of a very, very bad drought. In fact, 56% of South Africans agreed that the water crisis will be the next big thing. When we look at different genders, we see that females are slightly more worried about this than what males are. And I think it has to do with the fact that in large parts of Africa and also in large parts of our country, females are quite often the people who work the land and who are responsible for agriculture. If we look at different age groups, we see that people who are slightly older, above 35 years old, are more worried about the water crisis than younger people. But it cuts across all population groups and about all education groups. Then if we talk about the next question we asked, whether the government should consider nuclear power as an alternative energy source, this was really based on the fact that so many South Africans think that our energy utility supplier, ESCOM, is not doing such a great job. But about a half, 48% of South Africans agree that nuclear power should be considered as an alternative. If we look at people with different levels of education, we see that those with a higher education feel stronger in support of the use of nuclear power than those who do not have such a high education. And then the last question where we spoke about alternative sources of energy, we actually called it green energy, such as wind and solar power. We see here that six in every ten South Africans say, yes, definitely we should look at alternative sources of energy. And again, those with a slightly higher education are far more in favour of using green energy than those with lower education. Looking at the issue of uh, water, as it is that uh, the continent and other areas of the globe are facing a water crisis, are people aware of what are the causes of uh, this uh, water crisis? We did not ask people about the causes, obviously. I think most people in Africa agree that the drought plays a huge, big role at the moment in agriculture, in rising food prices. And because food prices are rising, the energy prices are rising, the cost of housing is rising, everything is rising because of the fact that food prices are so hard to come by at the moment. And uh, talking about uh, nuclear power with regards to the answers that were given by the people who were interviewed, are they aware that the nuclear power wouldn't be an alternative for South Africa looking at other areas of the globe, more especially Chernobyl as well as uh, Japan where we had uh, nuclear disasters and those countries are countries that have the technology and the know-how to deal with some of these issues but uh, they couldn't uh, match the challenges when 
the disaster struck. Yes, I'm sure they do. If we look at Chernobyl, that already happened in 1986, if I'm correct. So that's about 30 years ago. Japan, the Fukushima disaster was more recently. But that actually hung together with the fact that there was a huge tsunami an earthquake followed by a tsunami that nobody can really predict or do anything about. I do think in a lot of instances nuclear is used and it's quite safe. I think it depends how you administer it, how you use it. Large parts of Europe is using nuclear. In fact, in South Africa, most of the power used in the Western Cape comes from nuclear. We have quite an effective nuclear reactor on the West Coast. Looking at uh, the alternative uh, energy sources, now how would this uh, be able to benefit uh, some of the communities? I do think if we look at alternative energies like green energy, for instance, there is huge benefit for the communities. And I know, for instance, that the solar power that they recently instituted, I think it is a solar farm close to Uppington, there were quite a number of jobs created there. And down the line, obviously, there will also be jobs created because power lines have to be built, installed, and so on and so forth. The problem with any energy is that there is quite a lot of times in the beginning of for instance, you, you mentioned Mandupi and Kusile. At the beginning of the power station, the building of the power station, there are opportunities for people who are not very highly skilled, manual labor and so on. But as it goes on with maintenance, with uh, more sort of highly skilled jobs, you cannot use those people anymore because they simply do not have the skills to do the maintenance. So, you know, in the end, I do think alternative energies can create more jobs. And that was Mary Harris, Director at Global Product Manager at Ipsos, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Thanks, Balungile. South Africa and Iran have agreed to increase non-oil trade and investment to a billion U.S. dollars by 2020. This emerged after bilateral talks between President Jacob Zuma and Iranian President Hassan Rouhani in that country's capital, Tehran, on Sunday. Zuma is on a two-day visit. The two heads of state presided over the signing of eight bilateral trade agreements in the fields of energy, mining, agriculture, water resources and cooperation in intelligence gathering and anti-money laundering initiatives. Zuma explains. The time is indeed ripe for us to consolidate our trade and investment ties. I must also underline that the enthusiasm that I see here is encouraging. The attendance here speaks volumes of the interest and passion of both business from both countries that we are ready to do business. We want business to flourish between South Africa and (coughs) Iran. This is our moment. Mozambique has admitted to having over 1 billion US dollars of undisclosed debt. The International Monetary Fund learned of the undisclosed borrowing last week, but Mozambique's finance minister Adriana Melani initially dismissed the suggestion. 
Prime Minister Carlos Agustino de Rosario then flew to the U.S. to meet with IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde. The Finance Ministry team subsequently worked with the IMF in Mozambique to explain what had happened in terms of the borrowing. The Seychelles says it's helping an international investigation into the troubled state fund One Malaysia Development Berhard. Transactions involving 1MDB, which has piled up 11 billion US dollars in debt, are at the center of corruption and money laundering investigations in jurisdictions that include the US, Switzerland, Singapore and the United Arab Emirates. Egypt's supply ministry has purchased 57,000 tons of local wheat from farmers since the beginning of the season on April the 15th. Egypt, the world's largest wheat importer, is planning to buy 4 million tons of Egyptian wheat in the local season, which started last Friday. Farmers are being paid a fixed price of 47.30 US dollars per 150 kilograms of wheat after abandoning plans to pay farmers at global rates for their crop. Two South Korean firms could be picked to expand Botswana's Murupule B power station by 300 megawatts. This in a bit by the Southern African nation to ease power shortages. Energy Minister Kizomugaila was quoted in the local Megi newspaper as saying that the expansion be carried out by Korea Electric Power Corporation and Daewoo. The plant has installed capacity of 600 megawatts, but work is already underway to add 300 megawatts by a joint venture between Japan's Marubeni and South Korea's POSCO Energy. The U.S. dollar trades at 14.37 in South Africa, 10.55 in Botswana, 9.30 in Zambia. 6.9 British pound, 8.9 euro. Gold, $1,233. Platinum, $1,002 an ounce. Brand crude, $44.65 a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. My name is Tabiso Lohoku. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you. Good morning, sports fans. Elliot Kipjoge created history on the streets of London on Sunday morning, running the second fastest marathon of all time and smashing the course record in the process of claiming back-to-back London marathon victories and quite an incredible style. With Dennis Kimeto's world record of 2 hours, 2 minutes and 57 seconds set in Berlin two years ago in his sights, Kipjoge grounded his rivals into the ground, dropping the likes of Kimeto and Wilson Kip sung early on before bidding farewell to Kenyan compatriot Stanley Bilwatt with about a mile to go. He won the race in a time of two hours, three minutes and four seconds. I enjoyed last year, but I enjoyed this year more than last year. The reason is this. Uh, this is that five, uh, the London Marathon is celebrating that, that the fifth uh, and I am happy to be among one in a million, which has been realized today. Yes. Also happy to break a 30 kilometer world record here. That means I am more satisfied than, than last year. 
Meanwhile, Ethiopia's Jima Samgong completed a remarkable comeback to win the London Marathon Women's Race after smashing her head against a tarmac, or rather the tarmac, during the heavy fall. Um, just five miles from the finish line, she crossed the line in a time of 2 hours, 22 minutes and 58 seconds. On local football news, Supersport United defender Tabo September has warned Baroka FC that they won't roll over as easy as the other teams did. Baroka FC advanced to the semi-finals of the Nedbank Cup on Sunday after beating Bulawani City 2-0 at the old Peter Mugaba Stadium. The National First Division um, lock leaders have also beaten Chipa United and Golden Arrows en route to the last four of the tournament. Supersport United beat Mbomalanga Black Aces 2-1 on Friday night to qualify for the semi finals. Meanwhile, a 10-man Orlando Paris defeated the defending champions Bamlodi Sundowns 2-0 in extra time after the match ended in a goalless draw in 90 minutes. They will face Free State Stars in the other semi-final. In rugby news, the Kenya Sevens rugby team has set sights on winning the inaugural Olympic gold medal in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil later this year. The team is full of confidence after the win in Singapore and President Uhuru Kenyatta too has challenged them to go a notch higher in the remaining legs while setting the ultimate prize as a podium finish at the Summer Olympics. I speak on behalf of many millions of Kenyans who last Sunday watch this most dramatic final and like I said you know with what had been happening in the past with all the other tournaments that had taken place some of us had begun to lose hope so when we saw Saturday happen then we saw ourselves in on Saturday on Sunday some of us were not ready to believe it but I think it was without doubt a very, very good Sunday for millions of Kenyans, both here in the Republic and even those who reside outside. And mine is just to take this opportunity on behalf of millions in this country to thank these lads for the brilliant job that they have done. And finally, Netball News International Netball Federation President Molly Ron has praised Netball South Africa for their trend setting in the developing countries, particularly the African continent, by hosting the semi-professional league, the Brutal Fruit Netball Premier League. A host of international dignitaries from the Netball fraternity are in the country to witness the much-talked-about Netball Premier League that has had everybody's tongues waggling with excitement following their last two successful editions. And after watching a couple of matches, Ron was taken aback by the talent on display. Well, I am very impressed with the Flames. Um, you know, I've seen, I've seen, I saw some good talent on the other side as well, but I really was very, really impressed with the with the Flames. But I expect good talent when I come to South Africa. Anyway, South Africans are great athletes, so I do expect to see some good play. However, she believes or rather hopes that they, this will also pave the way for a fully-fledged professional league where women can earn a living by doing what they love the most, which is playing netball just in Australia, New Zealand as well as England. But she says it will be up to Netball South Africa as well as the sponsors. It's great if, if, if teams can do it. I mean, it's not really pushed by the International Federation, but we're pleased when we see that happening because not every woman or girl can play for the national team, you know, and represent the country. But it's great when there's another level of play like this, that they can hone their skills, you know, make a living, some of them. They can become coaches and umpires, and they continue to play the game. And then you, 
you get and this Lee can start from very young upwards so you also can spot talent from you know but it's, it's great I mean it would be great if all if netballers could be professional but um, it's going to take some time the Zoe Sports News at the Sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa rather than China this hour, South Africa and Iran agree to increase non-oil trade and investment to a billion dollars by 2020. And faith communities should join the chorus in addressing the issue of climate change. That wraps up Africa rather than China today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebumula Mukhulu, technical producer Sviso Mashejo, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news is an Bawimba tribute song chosen by Spiso Mashejo.